Again, it's great to see so many here, especially with uh, the number of families that we have um, that are sick and aren't able to be with us today. Again, just continue to pray for them, continue to lift them up um, as they begin to hopefully heal and get through all this sickness that's uh, going around. Um, if you're visiting with us, uh, today we've been just in a little mini-series uh, called um, Building Blocks to a God-Infused Vision, and um, I just want to jump right in because we got a lot, a lot to get through today um, because I want to, especially at the end, to be able to share a little bit about our vision um, here at Westside. So let's just kind of jump right in here. In, in his book, First Things First, Stephen Covey writes about Viktor Frankl, an Australian, or Austrian, not Australian, but an Austrian psychologist who survived the death camps of Nazi Germany. Frankl made a startling discovery about why some survived and some didn't. He looked at several factors. He looked at health. He looked at their vitality. He looked at family structure. He looked at intelligence and survival skills. Finally, he concluded that none of these factors were primarily responsible for their survival. What he found was this. He said the single most factor that kept many of them alive was a sense of a future vision. In other words, it was a compelling conviction that they had a mission to perform, that there was some important work that they had left to do in their life. We looked at this verse last week in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. In the King James, it simply says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Helen Keller was once asked, what would be worse than being born blind? This is what she said, having sight without a vision. Having sight, but no vision. You see, vision is that elusive thing that dares to dream big dreams. It's been called hope with a blueprint. It's what an inventor has when they think outside the box to create something that's new and something that's exciting. It's what a mother has as she looks into her newborn baby's eyes and just imagines all that that child could grow up to become. Last week, we began looking at some of these essential building blocks for this God-infused vision. These are taken from the life of Nehemiah, and they are also taken, uh, there are some thoughts taken and adapted from the book Visioneering from Andy Stanley. And as we begin, I just want to remind you and give you a little bit of background if you missed us last week, if you weren't able to be with us, just what we've talked about so far, so this will kind of get you up to speed. Um, in 586 BC, the Babylonian army attacked Judah and literally destroyed Jerusalem. And the people there were taken about a thousand miles away to a foreign country. When the Persians took over, King Cyrus made a decree to let some of the Jews return. So in three different stages over a period of roughly a hundred years, they were allowed to migrate back to Jerusalem. A few years later, as you come into the book of Nehemiah in chapter 1, it says that one of Nehemiah's brothers, Hanani, he returned from Jerusalem with some very bad news. You see, Jerusalem's walls were broken down. 
Its gates had been burned. And the people, they were living in disgrace. Now, even though that Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem, this news simply just broke his heart. And God began working a vision out in his life. A vision to rebuild and to restore the city of Jerusalem. Here's what we unpacked last week. The first three building blocks. The first one was this. A vision begins with a concern. It begins with a concern. Nehemiah got this news and, and, and he had this concern on his heart. It literally broke his heart. And that's what a concern will do, a vision will do. It will kind of grip us and, and something will get a hold of us, something that we just can't let go of. And one of the reasons is, is because it doesn't let go of us. And so a vision begins with a concern. It's, it's when you look around and you see the needs that are around you. But the second building block was this. A vision does not necessarily require immediate action, but it always requires patience. It doesn't require immediate action, but it always requires patience. You see, the problem we have is this. We try to put God into our time zone, and we can't do that. Because our time zone may not be his time zone. And we need to be patient. We need to wait like Nehemiah did and allow God to work the vision out. The third building block we looked at was this. A vision gains strength through the power of prayer. And I can't say this enough. Prayer is so critical to developing a vision for God. Why? Because prayer keeps us focused on the only one who can make the vision a reality. He's the only one that can make that vision a reality. So before you do anything, you pray. You know, I love it on Sunday mornings after, our, after we've prayed in our volunteer meeting. Usually that starts about 920. And after we pray, a few of us, we come in here and we simply pray over these chairs. And we pray for God to do only what God can do. We pray for God's spirit to just blow us away. We pray that every Sunday morning. And we pray for you. Why? Because I believe there's power in prayer. And before you do anything, you pray. You pray. So before we unpack the rest of these, that's exactly what we're going to do. So bow with me if you would. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for all that you are doing and all you've done. And God, right now, as we continue through this book, the book of Nehemiah, as we continue through these building blocks, God, spark something in our hearts, set something aflame, give us a vision that you have for us, God, something that we can do, a concern that we see or we've heard of that grips us. And God, help us then to just rely on you to accomplish that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we said last week, Nehemiah had an, uh, kind of an unusual job. Remember what he was? He's a cupbearer for the king. He got to taste the wine. He got to taste the food. Not because it was good, but he did it because he was the one that was testing to see if it was poisoned. 
I mean, great job, right? It's probably at the, the top of the list of everybody's job that they want to find, right? It's, it's one of those kinds of jobs. But again, even though you might thought, think that this was the best job to have if you're going to accomplish a God-given bi- vision, then you don't understand God because God knew exactly what he was doing. And so God put Nehemiah in a job that gave him an inside track for building a relationship with the king. And God was working behind the scenes and God was working upstream, putting everything into place. And just as this was true with Nehemiah, I believe that it's also true with us as well, which brings me to the next building block, building block number four. And this is one of my favorites. Sometimes it's hard to understand, but I think it's so true. What God originates, he orchestrates. What God originates, he orchestrates. Say that with me. Are you ready? What God originates, he orchestrates. Here's something that we tend to forget. The what of the vision always precedes the how. The what of the vision always precedes the how. Unfortunately, many visions die in the time between the what and the how. In other words, we know what we believe God has laid on our heart to do, but over time, not knowing how can cause us to rush ahead of God. It can cause us to lower our sights, our expectations of the vision, and even settle for a lesser one. One we think that we can accomplish now and that we can accomplish on our own. You see, Nehemiah definitely knew what God had called him to do, but he didn't have a clue as to how or when God would pull it off. God, on the other hand, always knows the how. He always knows the how. If you got your Bibles, open them up to Nehemiah, and we're going into chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2, this is what the first five verses say. Follow along in your Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen. Early the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king as wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. And so the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified, but I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asked, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to God, of he- to a prayer, with a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it pleases the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, Send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The burden for Jerusalem, that burden and that concern was weighing so heavy on the heart of Nehemiah that the king could see the sadness within his soul. And when he noticed that, he asked what he could do to help. So Nehemiah shares the story. And the king basically agrees to give him a leave of absence. And as you go on down in the scriptures, 
you, you find that he also agrees to send along letters with the king's seal on it to ensure safe, safe passage. And he even provides the resources, the money, and the materials for the rebuilding of the wall. Here's the thing. God not only knew how to secure Nehemiah's release from service to the king, but he also knew how the financing of the project would be handled. So here's something to never forget, and it's this. A divine vision requires divine intervention. A divine vision requires divine intervention. If you're going to do something big for God, understand it's going to happen because God does it through you. It's not about who you are. It's just about being available and allowing God to work through you and do the amazing through you. Here's the cool thing. It's not up to us to figure out the how of the vision. We don't have to figure out the how of the vision. Let me ask you, did Moses have to come up with the plan to get the Israelites across the Red Sea? Was it David's responsibility to figure out how to get Saul out of the way so he could have the throne of Israel? When Jesus told the apostles to feed the 5,000, did they have to figure out how to make five loaves and two fish feed 10,000 people? No. Of course not. How the vision would be accomplished was not up to them. And the same is true for us. Our job is simply to do what we know to do. And that is to trust God and then wait for him to show up. Just to trust him. And wait for him to show up and to show us and to help us to do what he has asked us to do. So Nehemiah travels to Jerusalem about a thousand miles. And when he gets there, he does something interesting. He doesn't share the vision right away with the people. Instead, he surveys the situation. He surveys the damage. I believe he did that because he wanted to have a better picture of what they were up against. But when the time was right, Nehemiah let the people know the purpose of his trip, which brings us to the next building block, building block number five, and it's simply this. When the time is right... Communicate your vision in a way that engages the hearts of others. You do it in a way that engages the hearts of others. So what did, what did he tell the people? Well, there were four things that Nehemiah talked about as a part of his vision casting that could help in engaging the people in accomplishing God's vision. First was this, he just simply shared the need. He shared the need. Look at verse 17, chapter 2. Verse 17, look what it says. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. There are two things that I want you to understand here. First of all, even though at times the need is very obvious. I mean, after all, they'd been living in, in these ruins and in disgrace for years and years and years and years. You see, the problem is, even though the need is obvious, if we are not careful over time, our complacency will cause us not to recognize it anymore. We won't be able to see the forest for the trees, so to speak. Because it'll just become the normal way of life. And that's what happened with the people in Jerusalem. It just became normal for them to live among the ruins and to live among the trash and to live among the burnt gates. And to live in disgrace. 
And so if you're not careful, complacency will take over and you won't recognize the need anymore. So he shares the need. But the second thing I want you to understand is this about the need, and that is this. Nehemiah stopped looking at it from the outside in, and he put himself on the inside with the people. Now, I want you to know, I've read this verse over and over and over again over the last few years. And I've preached this over and over again a couple, you know, several times uh, in other churches. But when I was reading this on Wednesday and just studying, this truth jumped off the page at me. Hopefully you caught it as well. Or maybe you were just like me all these years and you just kind of read it and skip over it. But it's this. Did you catch what Nehemiah actually said? Because what he actually said was this. You know very well what trouble we are in. Did you catch that? What we are in. He stopped looking at it from the outside in. He put himself in with the people. Here's the problem we have at times, I think. We see a need. We know that need needs to be met. And so we go to the people and we say, this is what you need to do. And this is what you need to do. Rather than putting ourselves in in their place and in their situation and saying, this is what we can do. This is what we can do because I'm in here with you. I'm with you in this project. I didn't come to Jerusalem to say this is what you need to do. I came here so we could do this together. We are in this. Let me say it. That's awesome, isn't it? The second thing he did was this. He shared the need, then he shares the solution. It says this, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Again, it's, it's us. He's not here to tell them what to do. He's here to do it with them. Here's the thing. Sharing the need stirs the heart, but sharing the solution engages the mind and the imagination. It invites others to imagine the future in a way that demands change in the present. So he shares the need, he shares the solution, and then he shares the reason behind the solution. And the reason behind the solution was simply this. Look what the scripture says. And end this disgrace. That's the reason behind the solution. It's to end this disgrace. You see, sharing the need and the solution is not enough without giving the people an incentive. People need to be motivated to action. Nehemiah knew that they were not just disgracing themselves. The problem was they were also an embarrassment to God. Israel was supposed to be this unique nation chosen by God, but nobody would have guessed it by looking at how they were now. And as I've said, Nehemiah's vision wasn't just about rebuilding the wall as, as it was about reestablishing a relationship with their God so that they could once again become a light to all the other nations. You see, sharing the need stirs the heart. Sharing the solution engages the mind and the imagination, but a compelling reason will engage the heart to action. And then fourthly, he shares the timing. He shares the timing. He explained why the vision needed to be pursued 
at this moment in time. Look what he says in verse 18. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. And so they began the good work. Nehemiah just shared his story. He just simply shared the story. He shared his concern. He shared how he wept. He shared how he prayed. He shared how God had brought everything together and worked all the details out. And when he was done sharing, the people buy into the vision and Nehemiah begins to divide the people into groups by families. And he has them working with people that they love and that they care about. And I think the reason is this, because amazing things happen when we work together out of love for one another. That's why it's so important to have a church that's unified. Let me tell you, one of the most devastating things to reaching a community is for people on the outside to see a church that's fussing and fighting and fuming and is not together and is not unified. And you want to be a light, then we need to be unified. And I think Nehemiah understood this. And so he had the people working with people that they loved in groups with families. And this brings me to the next building block, number six. Don't expect others to take greater risks or make greater sacrifices than you have. Don't expect others to take greater risks or make greater sacrifices than you have. Let me, let me tell you, visions never become a reality until someone is ready to make the jump and then champion the cause. You see, launching a vision always requires a wholehearted commitment. And this is one of the things I believe that made a difference with the people. I think the people could see that Nehemiah was 110% committed to God's vision. After all, Nehemiah had sacrificed a lot to get there. He left a job in the palace. He lived in the palace with the king. He was respected. He left that, traveled about a thousand miles, hoping that a group of people that he never met would join him in a project that on the surface had little chance of success. And maybe seeing his commitment encouraged them to sacrifice as well. Because you got to remember, this was an agricultural society. If you weren't working, you weren't eating. And adding this kind of a project to your daily routine meant putting other things on hold. And eventually, Nehemiah had them actually leave their homes altogether, move into the city to make the work more efficient. And get, get this, they did it. They did it, and they did it willingly. You see, the vision of what could be and should be compelled them to take the risk and make the necessary sacrifice. So, as I was thinking about that, this is what hit me. The reason that I believe that many Christians... And many churches today do not see God's vision accomplished. It's because they are not willing to sacrifice and risk together. You get that? I personally believe, I believe that one of the reasons why churches and individuals and Christians aren't able to accomplish God-given visions is because we're not willing to sacrifice and we're not willing to risk. 
I've been in a number of churches over the years, and I can tell you that some of those churches were just kind of stale and stagnant and complacent. As a youth pastor or as a worship pastor looking at that, I always wondered why. But now as I look back, I could see we had churches that weren't willing to sacrifice, that weren't willing to take the risks. And so as we sat in board meetings and we looked at budgets for the upcoming year, this is the thing I always remembered and always stuck with me and always made me so upset. It's when guys would say, this is a good budget because this is something we can accomplish. You know what they're saying? They're saying this is a good budget because we can do this on our own. We don't need God to show up. Instead of saying, this is a good one, but I think we need to stretch to this point because this can only happen if God shows up. This can only happen if we're willing to make the sacrifices and take the risks. That's what I loved about my church that I was at at the journey in Northern Virginia. I had a group of elders who were prayer warriors, who were risk takers, who understood what it meant to sacrifice. In fact, they were the first ones to write the checks. They were the first ones to sacrifice to see God's work accomplished. We did a $2 million remodel, just a remodel. I mean, it's crazy what things cost up there. And our church didn't hesitate one bit. I've told you before, we actually went into a capital gifts program (laughs) needing to raise $2 million. And the first Sunday that we kicked the program off, the government shut down. Now, this was just outside of D.C. We were 60% military. A lot of our guys worked at the Pentagon. They worked in D.C. They worked as government contractors. They weren't getting paid. It lasted for over a month. And do you know what our sacrificial upfront love offering was when we took it the week after the government came back into play. We raised over 700000 in one offering. Why? Because they were willing to sacrifice and were willing to risk. Here's the thing. Somebody once said, and I believe this is true, fear will paralyze a church, but faith will always carry her to the realms of the impossible. So get that? Fear will paralyze the church. It'll paralyze the Christian. But faith will always carry her to the realms of the impossible. That's why faith isn't faith until you're ready to risk something for God. Faith isn't faith until you're ready to risk something for God. Noah was willing to risk reputation and ridicule and the loss of family and friends to build a boat in the desert for God that took 100 years to do. Abraham was willing to risk the life of his son to be obedient to his God. David was willing to risk his own life to face a giant for God. The disciples were willing to risk everything to follow Jesus. And Jesus left the security and the glory of heaven to risk dying on a cross so that we could have life. So let me ask you, what are you willing to risk for God? What are you willing to risk? How's your faith? Are you willing to do what it takes in order to reach this community for Christ? Or have we been living in complacency for so long that we just can't see? 
what can happen when we're ready to step out in faith and take a risk. Now, this is free of charge. If we're going to be the church that God has called us to be, then our faith can't just be in what we can do, but it has to be in what we can only do when God shows up and does it in us and through us. Now, let's go on. As you come into chapter 4, Nehemiah discovered what we tend to discover. When you're doing something great for God, the enemy doesn't like it. Anybody ever found that to be true in your life? Yeah, I I can tell you a lot of people in here have. I've talked to you some this week. We found that to be true. When you're doing something great for God or anything for God, that's when the enemy shows up. He doesn't like it. So as soon as the work on the wall began, they immediately began to face opposition. Some local politicians began to take cheap shots. So turn over to chapter 4. Chapter 4, first three verses. This is what it says. When Sambalat heard we were rebuilding the wall, he was very angry, even furious. He made fun of the Jewish people. He said to his friends and those with power in Samaria, what are these weak Jews doing? Will they rebuild the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Can they finish it in one day? Can they bring stones back to life from piles of trash and ashes? Now, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was next to Sambalit, said, talking about trash talk, man, <laughs> look at this. If a fox climbed up on the stone wall they are building, it'd break it down. It'd break it down. In other words, it's not going to last. It's not going to stand up there. A fox could even break it down. And after the wall was halfway done, the trash talk turns to threats of violence. And the people get discouraged and things start to slow down, which brings me to the next building block, number seven. (coughs) Excuse me. And it's this. Don't get sidetracked by the distractions of life. Don't get sidetracked by the distractions of life. Let me tell you, life is full of distractions. And because of that, important things are often sacrificed for what we consider to be the urgent things. So let's take a brief look at three distractions that Nehemiah faced that we still face today as we pursue a God-given vision for our life. The first distraction is this, it's criticism. Ever been criticized? It's criticism. This was probably not the first time Nehemiah faced criticism, and it wouldn't be the last. As you move into chapter 6, you find these same guys trying to get Nehemiah's focus off his vision. And this time, the criticism was a bit more personal. And so Nehemiah prays and he asks God for strength to continue the work. He let God worry about his reputation and he continued with the vision that God had put on his heart. Here's the thing. Don't waste your time focusing on those who will criticize you. Instead, share those hurts with God. Trust him to take care of the critics and then just get back to work. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, but that's what we need to do. We need to trust God with the critics and just get back to work. The second distraction is this, opportunities. Let me tell you, Every day of our lives, opportunities come along that have the potential to distract us from the main thing that God has called us to do. Now, often they're good things. I'm not saying these opportunities are bad. Sometimes they're good things. But to accomplish the most important things, we must learn to say no to some good things. 
In chapter 6, Sambalat tried to distract Nehemiah with an opportunity to meet with him. It turns out that would have been a bad thing to do. So Nehemiah responds by saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot meet with you. So maybe that's what we need to do. The next time you are tempted to do something that would distract you from the vision that God has given you, just respond like Nehemiah did. I'm doing a great work for God. I cannot meet with you now. And then get on with the vision. But the third distraction is this, fear. Fear will distract us. And as the trash talk turns to threats of violence, it would have been really easy for Nehemiah to just tuck his tail and run and hide. But just as Nehemiah had not allowed critics or opportunities to distract him, he also did not let fear distract him from the vision. At some point or another in our vision, you may want to run in fear. You may think about all the what ifs. And you'll be afraid. You'll be afraid of failing. But we can't let fear distract us. We have to remember who's in control of our vision. Because if it's you, if you're the one that's in control of the vision, let me tell you, then running and hiding and giving up, that's always going to be an option. Always. But if it's God, if he's in control of the vision, then guess what? Running and hiding and giving up. That's never an option if he's in control. You see, there's nothing to fear when the outcome is dependent on God and not us. The problem, I think the reason we fear and the reason we get discouraged a lot of times is because we think the outcome is dependent on us. It's not. The outcome is dependent on God. So never forget, God always has a deeper purpose for the vision than what is visible on the surface and allow him to work that out. And so they stayed focused and they left the outcome to God and get this, because they did, the wall was finished. And it was finished in record time. As you move into chapter six, verses 15, 16, this is amazing. This is what it says. On the 25th day of the month of Elu, the wall was completely rebuilt. Now, this is, what, this is the amazing part. It had taken 52 days. I want you to let that sink in. It had taken 52 days. When our enemies in the surrounding nations learned that the work was finished, they felt helpless. I imagine they did, right? 52 days. They felt helpless because they knew that our God had helped us rebuild the wall. 52 days, less than two months, and the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt by a bunch of people who had just been living among the trash and the rubble and who had been living in complacency for years. And yet because they got a hold of a God-infused vision from the life of Nehemiah, God did the incredible. Let me tell you, and they did it in spite of the opposition. They did it in spite of the threats. And they did it because Nehemiah had that heartfelt vision from God. 
And after the wall was completed, Nehemiah organized this an incredible party to celebrate the fact that God had used them to rebuild what had been broken for 150 years. And do you know what they did to celebrate? They read the word of God. That's how they celebrated. They read the word of God and the people wept because God's word pierced their hearts and they realized that they had not been following his word and they repented and they vowed to walk now in obedience. That's how they celebrated. Now, before we close, I want to share our vision here at Westside with you. Kind of our God-infused vision. It's in its simplest form, our vision is simply this, and it's right outside these doors on this wall. It simply says, our vision is to know Jesus and to make him known. It's to know Jesus and to make him known. Now let me give you my personal specific visions for this place. It's the visions that I had when I came. Now, the majority of you are new. We don't have a lot of people that's left that I inherited when, when I came in August of 2000, whatever it was, 16, 17. Yeah, 17. And that's fine. Let me tell you, it was tough leaving the journey up in... Springfield. It was a church in some ways a lot like this when I went there. It went through a lot of tough, tough times. It had gotten down to just a handful of people. And God had done an amazing work over those nine years. And I love those people. And it was tough to stand before them and say that I was leaving in one way. But in another way, it wasn't. Because God gave me a vision for this place. When the leaders called me and said, would you consider coming and helping us to kind of rebuild? I came down and talked to them and we sat for about two and a half hours right here in this room on plastic chairs that we used to have. (laughs) That was the first thing I said we were getting rid of was those plastic chairs. We sat in those and for two and a half hours, we just talked. And I kind of shared with him some of my thoughts and my visions for this place. That if I came, the things that were important to me, and I want you to know what's important to me, I want you to know what my vision is for this place. Because I hope you get on board as well and hang on and run the race with me. My specific visions for this is, first is to see hundreds of broken and hurting people come to know that that there is a God who loves and forgives and who can change their life. I mean, that's, that's important to me. I want us to be able to reach hundreds of just broken and hurting people with the message of Jesus Christ. I want them to know that God loves them. I want them to know that God wants to forgive them. I want to know that their lives can be different and changed because of who he is, not because of who we are. The second thing is this. It's to have a church family that comes together in authentic and relevant and vibrant vibrant worship of our God. 
And let me tell you, when we hired this guy right here uh, at the end of January, a year ago, his first year anniversary is next week. And birthday. birthday. (laughs) No, you're not getting a cake this year. Okay. But when we hired this guy, this began to become a reality. It's not that it wasn't already. They had a great worship. The Garen has just brought it to another level because of his humility in his heart. And I believe that's something that we have here is authentic and relevant and vibrant worship to our God because it's not about us. It's about glorifying him. My vision is to have a church family that is unified in their love and kindness and compassion and concern for one another. That's one of the reasons I I tell you about our community groups. That's one of the reasons I want you to be a part of a community group. It's because we need to come together in unity and to be unified and and we need to love one another and, and have kindness and compassion and concern just flow out of us into each other's lives. And we've been able to do that in in a lot of ways, but we can do more. It's to equip people to grow into spiritual maturity through these community groups and these Bible studies and these practical ministry events. Again, that's one reason I'm so thankful for Tiffany and what she has started through our women's ministry and the mentoring program that got kicked off yesterday. They've got a bunch of women in mentoring, mentoring each other to become more like Christ. That's why I'm so excited for our men's kickoff event next, next Saturday night. And man, I'm, I'm challenging you to be here. To be here. Sign up out there and be here. But our, my vision is to impact, enrich, and improve our surrounding communities and the world through acts of kindness, compassion, and love. That's why I want us to get involved in the rescue mission. That's why Garen has our youth, and they are a great example. They were building, they were building beds again yesterday morning. Our youth was, or were. They were building beds. That's why we partnered with Louisville Elementary School. That's why we were able to help about 70 families over Thanksgiving and kids at Christmas time through Louisville Elementary School because we want to impact our surrounding community. And this is my prayer. I pray that our vision will always be God-sized and that we will realize that it can only be fulfilled by relying on Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish it through us. Let me tell you, if our vision is less, if it's only what we can do, then it's not a vision. It's a vision when, when it's something that's big enough that it's going to be accomplished because God shows up. And that's my prayer. I got to close. I'm reminded of a story. I know I've went a little longer, but this is important. I'm reminded of the story of a man who had done something incredible for his king. So the king called him in and said this. He says, I'm going to give you my staff, and I want you to go outside, and I just want you to mark off with my staff in the dirt all that you want. You just mark it off all that you want, and whatever you mark off, I'm going to give you. It's going to be yours. And so the man took the staff outside and he just stood there and then he simply took the staff and he drew a circle around himself. He just drew a circle around himself. 
The king was a little bit flabbergasted, couldn't believe that all he drew was a circle around himself. So the king said, is that all you want? Is all, all that you want is what's inside that circle? And the man goes, oh, no, that's not what I want. I want everything outside the circle. I thought about that. What if we could draw a circle around this church, around this property, and we go to God and we say, God, we want to claim everything outside this circle for you. What could happen for the kingdom of God if we were to have that kind of faith and trust? That's exactly what Jabez did in 1 Chronicles 4.10 when he says, Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. We need to be like Jabez. We need to just pray, God, enlarge our territory. Enlarge it. Give us everything outside this building. We claim it for you and for your kingdom. Bring those people so that we can minister to them and to share Christ with them. Nehemiah saw the, saw the need and he got a concern and a God-given vision within his heart. My prayer is that we will look out and see the need and get a concern within ours as well as we help people to know Jesus and to make him known. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this day. And thank you so much for all you do. God, I just thank you for what you've laid upon our hearts. I thank you for the opportunities that you give. And so many times we just can't see the forest for the trees. We just... I've lived this way for so long that it's, it's just normal. Help us to break free of that. Help us to get that God-given vision within our souls, within our hearts that says, God, help us just to reach more and more people for you, to see the needs to meet the needs, to see people one. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Not to make us look good, but simply to glorify you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.